Ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited today to have the incredible, the one and only, well, actually, he, he could tell, he's going to give his bio, but um, no, no, in all seriousness, I know Tim Cochran now for a while. Um, he is in the incredible in the veteran mentoring game with American Corporate Partners. He has grown that entity and that, that program to something that, I mean, I, I would aspire to even get half the kind of things that this man has accomplished for veterans and given back. Um, so I'm excited to have him today because we're going to talk about all kinds of things. Uh, may not all be about transitioning, uh, but uh, we want to know more about the man behind the mission. So ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Tim Cochran. Scott, did you see the size of this head? Don't be, don't be adding anything to it. <laughs> I got got to give Marines, you know, I know Marines have egos. I want to make sure that they, they I want to make sure I pump that up a little bit, especially, yeah. you know, after, after my experience at you in the stock exchange, you know, I saw everybody wanted a high five and no Tim Cochran. I got, it was like, geez, he's the man <laughs> I can go to like the velvet rope and the, you know, yeah. like all the big the bouncers let everybody through and got everybody out of the way when you showed up. It's just that I'm the old guy. They feel sorry for me. I don't know. They, they, they seem to really. They, they everyone wanted to high five you. Is all is the best way I could I could say that yeah. experience. Well, that place um, like my house. You know, my family. I spent 35 years there, so it's been a hell of a run. So let's let's start there. Let's talk about from um, your. Let, let's give everybody a little bit of your bio. Let's let's talk about. Where did Tim, Co Tim Cochran, you know, where you joined the service, because, you know, everybody, you, you're a Marine, just take us a little bit about your service. And then let's talk about, you know, where you went after that, like your transition and the, what, what were you going to do? Because times have always changed. Not saying that, you know, that actually, no, time, time has basically changed for everything, except for now we have more resources. So let's, let's start taking, let's start that part where you served and then how you got out and where you wound up being. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I was blessed to, to go in the Marine Corps. But prior to that, my claim to fame was I was the youngest assistant manager for McDonald's in the tri-state area. <laughs> if you didn't notice the accent, it's live from New York. Uh, I, you know, born and raised in Brooklyn, but uh, I went off into the Marine Corps. Um, you know, it was the old recruiter coming through the drive-thru on a on Friday night saying, hey, what are you doing in this one-way loser job? And me saying, one way, I'm system manager. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, three days later, I got my hand up in Syracuse. Uh, you know, because I was, I was done with the whole McDonald's career real early. Uh, but, you know, back then I was blessed. I, I qualified for electronics. Hmm. Um, but I didn't do very well in the old digital logic and fundamentals <laughs> of electronics. You know, and so I really did well on one piece of equipment, which was mind detect. Uh, and little did I know, being the mind detector guy, the only place for you to go was Guantanamo Bay. Uh, and so I spent almost two years in school and then almost two years in, in Gitmo, um, just working, you know, and look, you're, you're 20 years old or whatever, you're not thinking about going out and worrying about getting blown up, right? You know, especially I was a Reagan Marine, uh, you know, it was Cold War. Yeah. You know, playing my colleagues, you know, headed off to, to uh, Lebanon. And, uh, you know, it's a whole different world over there. But for me, I went right off to Gitmo. Um, I had a great run. I loved the Marine Corps. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, it laid that solid foundation. It's why I'm pretty successful with ACP today is because I, I really fully understand how it transformed me as a young guy uh, and uh, wound up on Wall Street. I mean, uh, I came out of the Marine Corps. 
um, wound up coming to New York City and living with my sister, mm-hmm. hopefully getting a job. But I wound up on 20 interviews I had no business being on because who the hell was looking for a mind detector repairman <laughs> right. in Manhattan? Right. Right. But now all of a sudden, you know, what do I do now? Right. Uh, you know, and I remember going on interview after interview and my fiance at the time and now my wife of over 30 years looking at me and I said, hey, I had no clue what that guy was talking about. Um, I'm never going to get a job. Uh, the guy who ran technology at the New York Stock Exchange was a former Marine. Friend of a friend got me an interview there. Um, and next thing you know, you know, if I could survive Paris Island, he could train me and he hired me. Uh, and back in the day, everything was done and you saw the operation yeah. on the floor. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was an open outcry. 4,000 men and women packed into the New York Stock Exchange, trading, all that crazy screaming, yelling, and all that was captured in the machines, and that's where I got my start. So um, that, that's an interesting thing uh, that you had said, because I, I remember you told me the story when we had breakfast that day in that, at the Stock Exchange, and um, for most people, they don't realize how fast, I mean, it was fat. for me, it was fascinating, right, because how the system actually worked. Um, what I thought was interesting too about, because just to let people know, because a lot of people didn't realize at the stock exchange was, I love that you told me how they catch people is that they record everything on the floor. So no one can say, especially back then, right? Because if someone was talking now, I know it's electronic, it's a little different, but every, every voice was, everything was recorded at the time for protection of, of the buyer. And I guess the seller for that matter, which is an okay. interesting thing. Well, especially as an independent, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, we did well and we had a great business. But, you know, if somebody gives you, go buy 100,000 shares of IBM right. and you go out in the crowd and you buy, you know, a half a billion dollars worth of stock, you walk in and the guy says, wait a second, I told you to sell them. Yeah. Uh, if that wasn't captured on the tape, you know, and you would be terrified. Right. And right away, you know, you're hitting the thing and, no, listen here, you told me to go out and buy them. You know, if you didn't have that as to capture that, uh, you'd be in trouble. And at the same time, you know, then obviously you work with your customer to get through it. So there were periods where, but it, it you know, it kept you honest, you know, and you knew every single aspect of our business right. at the, you know, we were the end product of financial services. New York Stock Exchange was the end all. Anybody who wanted to buy any stock listed, and back in those days, we had way over 90% of market share. Today, you know, that's probably under 20%. Um, if you wanted to buy IBM or you wanted to buy General Motors, you had to come through an independent floor operator or one of the houses at the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, we cornered the market on, on business. And so, you know, it was very important for our end of the business to be, you know, on the up and up. Was it, uh, was it an odd moment for you? Um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about military transition after, but I, I'm curious about that. Did you have that moment of being surreal when, everything went away from screaming at each other to, cause I didn't see any of that when we were on the floor. Now everything was, it was a minimal, I, I don't know how I many, there was only maybe a couple hundred people there at that. Um, nobody was screaming, everybody had headsets on and they were just doing trades in front of, um, you know, uh, in front of computer screens. There may be a couple people walking back and forth, but when did that moment shift over and change? Yeah, it was literally overnight in 2007. We went from what they called the, the open outcry system to a hybrid. Hybrid my ass. It was electronics overnight. Um, literally, the following day, the phone stopped ringing. 
um, to some extent, right? There was still plenty of guys upstairs who were just getting used to the whole system. But it was, you know, the day before uh, I got an order to go buy or sell a stock. I went out onto the trading floor, into the crowd, you know, and started trading. Now I go out on the floor and the guy'd say, okay, great, put your order into the system and I'll trade it for you through the algorithms and what we do here. I was, you know, it literally took the business out of our hands uh, and gave it over to the computer. Did everybody, was everybody also kind of looking around? Cause I mean, I had to reduce jobs right away, right? Did that just- You know, you felt like the, the guy who created the whip for the buggies right. as you saw the first Model T go by. You're like, what the hell? There right, right. This, it's going, you know, it's, it's gone. Um, yeah. Because, you know, but look, I still have a firm on the floor of the exchange that I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm still there. Yeah. Uh, because there are a few aspects of the business where it's, you know, the, the New York Stock Exchange still feels it's very important to have uh, somebody, a human voice in, uh, you know, when it comes down to actually doing the trades on the openings and the close. Now, today, due to coronavirus and here being in the epicenter of right. craziness, um, the floor is closed and there are no people involved. It's all done through technology. But, you know, they are going to reopen the floor and bring bodies back in there. But look, compared to the 4,000 when I was there, now, as you saw, there yeah. may be 100 people left trading. Uh, when I got there, remember, every single trade. So I started out in technology, yeah. right? Because every single trade had to be verbalized written down and stuck into a card reader, and then it hit up on a, on a ticket tape. You know, I wound up, you know my story, I yeah. wound up working for a guy who used to break the machine all the time and he thought, wow, wouldn't this be great if I had a clerk who could fix the machine at the same damn time? Next thing you know, I'm a stockbroker and, and I built one of the largest independent floor operations. But a lot of it, trust me, it's, you know, more guts than brains, trust me. It's, you know, right place, right time. Capital markets were exploding in the late 80s and I happened to be there. Did the move, so I, I just out of curiosity, cause I always, and I know we kind of touched on this, but I think people might want to know, did the movies like Wall Street or anything that ever showed the, the floor, did that really capture the essence of what was happening at the time? I think on the floor side, you know, we were separated from the back office. So the, 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 the Belfords of the world and the wolves of Wall Street, that kind of nonsense we didn't see. Right. Uh, like I said, we were so regulated from the SEC, from FINRA, and the New York Stock Exchange was a self-regulated uh, institution. Yeah. Um, so it was very, very important for you know, the end product of what we did to be on the up and up. And look, they were knuckleheads, right? We all get it. But, <laughs> right. but in general, uh, you know, the, it was the, uh, a really, really above board business at the New York, and it still is today. Um, but was it organized chaos though? I mean, did you it have, was, it was insane. When I walked up the stairs for the first time, yeah. first of all, you know, when we were down there by nine o'clock in the morning, you couldn't see the floor. It was literally wow. covered with paper and this trading didn't start till nine 30. Um, so you, you can imagine what it was like. And now you got 4,000 people crammed into a room. The roar, I still yell today, as you can see. Right. When I talk, my wife is constantly like, are you yelling? Well, <laughs> I spent my whole career yelling, you know. Thank God the Marine Corps taught me how to project my voice because, uh, you know, I get to the floor and, and I found a home. I was like, holy crap, this is, uh, I'm going to do just fine here. This is, 
like you said, controlled chaos. So this is, so we'll, we'll go back a little bit in time. I, I always want to get that little bit because I, I think it's, it was fascinating that day on the floor and seeing what you had gone through all those years and, and seeing that you, you grown and how, I mean, I know about the stock market, but that in general was just a fascinating and I, and I appreciate and thank you. But let's go back to this because this is interesting because I think this, like you said, set you up for success. Young Marine transitioning out and you were a minesweeper. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I don't know what that MOS transition or even translation would have looked like in the 80s, let alone even like nowadays, right? I mean, I can't imagine what that resume, what you even wrote down on, on the resume then. But obviously, I mean, you would contribute that to be a major part of your success because like you said, you went into 20 interviews that you didn't have any business in being. But I think the Marines had given you the confidence to go do those types of interviews regardless. Is that, I mean, that is what you kind of feel and I mean, that kind of trial and error? No, part of it too is that you had a greater sense of, especially for, for New York stocks. Well, let's, let's take Tim Cochran who went from, you know, mine detector repairman or attached to an engineer unit or to the floor of the exchange. Every time those guys bought and sell a, a, a trade, it was so important that that trade got reported, got in there and that it didn't get screwed up or else somebody financially could be ruined. The same story was what we were taught in the core. If you send your buddy out into the minefield with a crappy piece of equipment, right. and all of a sudden he's out in the middle of nowhere and, how that, and, it, and it goes dead, or same thing with a radio or any other piece of technology that you're responsible for, you know, that's your fault. You know, you're part of that. So I brought that type of personality and thought process to the work that I did at the exchange. And that's why they, look, most of the guys that did what I did were all military guys right you know the guy who hired me was looking for uh military guys because he knew that you had to have a sense of urgency and that your work was so important so then fast forward a little bit because we're, we're going to talk about transition and, and more of what you do um because now you're 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 taking take us take us through where it started with american corporate partners today because i actually remember with Justin, Justin Constantine and I went into AmeriCorps Partners in 2014, I think. Him and I went up to your New York offices at the time. Um, yeah, my God, it was 2014, I think. And uh, I remember that to where it was then. And it was great. Actually, prior to that, I started America Corporate Partners. I started doing it in 2008, right before I started my company, um, URS, which is now AECOM. Um, it was EG&G, then URS and AECOM. Um, we had signed up, I believe, at the time. And we start, I remember getting into the program and working through it and thinking, what a great idea. You know what I mean? Like from every aspect of the, of the program. And now, I mean, that was 12 years ago. Like yeah. I'm thinking about that now, but I've seen the strides it's made because then I re-engaged in the program years after I started GCO. I re-engaged into the program with your folks and it just was such, it was so much more robust. So tell me, what does it look like from when you get there into what you grow it from? So when I, when I got there, uh, you know, three years ago, um, it, was, it was really, you know, so we've been almost at 10 years. That was about the 10-year mark. And uh, Sid Goodfriend had founded it. He was the number one banker for Merrill, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how, at that point, we had about 60 companies. Um, Sid was looking for somebody at that point. He put 10 years of his life into this thing. It was his community service program. He built it up. He never took a dime. In fact, he put his own money in time and time again 
uh, to keep it going. But mm -hmm. he built a phenomenal model, as you, you could see. Yeah. Uh, but his Rolodex has gotten to an end. Uh, me coming out of the New York Stock Exchange and having relationships, and I was always involved, not only as a stockbroker, but I was on every damn committee. My partner was one of the uh, members of the board of directors. So yeah. it was like, all right, Timmy, you're on technology. You're on, you know, so I built a, a big following of, of connections. Um, and when I saw those companies, I said, geez, this is a place where I could come in and help put what I, you know, my relationships to work to help build this thing out. Because I got it right away. It's like I said, you know, we all transition. Yeah. Holy crap, you, you were a superstar in, in the military. Now all of a sudden you come out in day one, you know, what am I doing? And it's not so much as you don't, you have great skills, but how do you, you know, translate those? Um, so I, I got on board there. One of the first things I saw at the time, we were only getting about 10 applications a day okay. uh, for, for veterans, you know, we, and we had some great resources yeah. because um, Sid was able to get us onto just about every base. But part of the model was we had no money for marketing. Everything was about staff. So you could get on all the bases, but you didn't have money to go. And who the hell could be out there and, right. and have to get a team? We didn't have direct fundraising. So we didn't, which was a good sense because then the military said, great, because you're not doing fundraising. We don't, as much as you're a nonprofit, you're helping veterans. You're not going to go after our guys for money and so on and so forth. Um, and look, we had, I think, almost 10 generals on our board of directors. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had started a, a real estate company back in seven and eight uh, on the side. And it was because I knew every developer in town. And uh, little did I know, mm -hmm. you know, unless you know the building managers, right. uh, you're lost. So you could, own, you could know the guy who owns the building because that son of a gun is going to get you the, the, the interview with the, with the manager. But he's already got his guys and right. he already knows what works. So yeah, he'd have a cup of coffee with you. You couldn't develop the business. I saw that same kind of thing going on at ACP. I felt like we had all these generals and we had access, but I didn't have any command sergeant majors. Right. I needed guys who were on the boots on the ground. And so I reached out a few guys, Mike Quinn, who you know, um, who said, yeah, we get it. We love it. Our guys should take advantage of this thing. And the next thing you know, today we have almost 30 to 40 apps a day. Um, wow, yeah. So now the thought process was that we're going to we'll build up that part of the, the business. Um, now companies. So in the last three years, we've, we've added almost 30, maybe even more than or 35 Fortune 500 companies. Um, everything from Major League Baseball to AIG to smaller companies like Cabot Chemical out of Boston. You know, and a lot of it was through my relationships at the exchange where I'd grab a CEO as you know, as he's coming yeah. off the podium and start to say, hey, what do you guys do about for veterans? And look, when you think about ACP and you know how ACP works, for a guy or gal coming out of the military, to have the opportunity to have, you know, like I like to say, to have a mentor is like having a rich uncle. It's right. somebody who will open doors for you, not necessarily get you the job, but is going to give you everything you need to get that job, right? And that's what ACP is all about. So I think, and that's interesting. So ACP, so everybody knows, I mean, basically American Corporate Partners offers mentorship, right? And I believe you also do that now for military spouses as well, right? Just to help we ensure because they have such a difficult time because let's be honest, portable careers are not easy. You're moving every three years and it's, 
you know, the family units, you know, we got to keep them together to keep that, you know, basically to keep it strong, obviously. Um, but one of the things we talked, I talked to yesterday, I talked to a great guy, uh, Herb Thompson, who also does transition. He was a, actually, I loved it because uh, his claim to one of the, I think it's a great claim to fame. I wish you could say it. He was, um, he had won both competitions. He was the number one Green Beret of the year and the number one drill sergeant of the year. Um, it's not an easy thing to do either one of them, but to do both of them uh, was pretty impressive. Um, so, but he had a lot of great knowledge, a lot of good, good things about transition. You guys probably should definitely hook up in an interview because he's, I mean, he does great things. But one of the things that came up, which I think you, you may, but I think people forget, and I think it's not so much a civilian thing, but I think it's more of a military issue. So there was actually more than one person brought this up and then it kind of came out in the wash and the discussion yesterday was this. You know, we're sitting there, whether you serve four years or 20, right? The whole time you're told what to do, essentially, right? You know, you know and, and we know that, right? Even with the transition, like when you go through ACP, uh, not ACP, uh, ACAP uh, or TAP, whatever they call it nowadays, uh, all those different programs coming out of transition, it's mandatory. You're told to go show up at the classroom. The last thing you're going to do, you're just going to go like this. You look at, oh, this just sucks. This is terrible. You know, there's nothing worse than being an E4 sitting in a room for mandatory 40 hours of some kind of training. And you literally just want to be like, when is this going to be over? Right. One of the things I noticed that comes true is that we're very good in the military. Even if you're the best soldier or the best Marine or anything along those lines, you're good at following orders. That's what you're supposed to do. But somebody said something the other day and I didn't agree with them. And I kind of, I challenged him on it. And I said, he's like, well, you know, we have all these resources out there, but I got to tell you, I go, you know, these individuals, these, these, these military members really need to take some responsibility for themselves here. And I said, listen, I said, I don't agree. I go, yes, I, yes, they, they can be hard charges the whole time, but you're talking about you, the military, the leadership has sat here and drilled this into this person's head from the first day of boot camp till the day ever that they are going to take orders and they now there's not initiative you're going to go do it but now you're telling me in a day to flip a switch and be like why aren't you taking the advantage and doing things on your own why aren't you doing so i was just like the leadership has to get involved because i was lost my mind when he said it because i was like listen i understand that these are the great some of the greatest and finest people in the world you can't have somebody who's institutionalized essentially it's not a bad thing for all these years and then flip the switch and be like well why aren't you doing what you you know why aren't you taking initiative listen the guy the guy who's sitting in that room who is going to take the initiative he don't need me exactly that's the way i look at it you know when i do presentations you know and this is this is something that we evolved you know Hell, when I was going through, whatever they call it now, tap or whatever, but when we were going through, it was like listening to Charlie Brown's teacher up there. I didn't hear crap, you know? So when I look at that room that I'm presenting to about this opportunity for ACP, I think it's all Tim Cochran's who are not listening to me an iota of what I'm saying. And so, and, and, you know, people get a kick out of it, but I say that three quarters way through, I say, all right, stop. Everybody, get out your phones, get your laptop. I want to see it right now. Got it? Because now I got them captured. Right. Start writing. I'm going to watch you fill out the application because I know how important this is. Right? And then at some point down the road, you're going to come back to me and say, Timmy, thank God you, you made me do that damn thing. 
because I no more would have went home that night. I would have grabbed the Budweiser before I would have freaking grabbed that application because it goes, you know, I'm so with you. I mean, that's part of what being in the military is all about. And there's way too often the position where they think things are going to be, you know, it's going to be the same as like in the military right. where there's a process to it. Dude, it's all about competition out here. And in this environment, oh. I mean, I, what I'm seeing here, you know, is as scary as anything I've ever seen in my life. I lived through September 11. I lived through, I lost my home in Sandy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen it. And what I've seen, this is why I'm a uh, veterans leader today, yeah. is that things change. Businesses change. You need, there was a gal, I can't think of her name, Brev or something or whatever. Uh, did a, a TED talk and I happened to pick it up the other day and the guy was doing an interview with her and he said, you know, uh, you're one of the greatest self-help people. And she said, stop. Listen to me. There's no such thing as self-help. We all need help. Everybody right. needs somebody. You can read a book to your purple. If somebody doesn't reach out and say, hey, I'm going to help you with this. Here's what we're going to do. More than likely, you're not going anywhere. I thought that was awesome. And that's yeah. what our guys need. So that's, and that's an important, that's an important thing, right? Because really, if you think about it, um, one of the, so you just brought up a good point, which I think was why I wanted to talk about with you today. Cause you see it, especially cause you're in the epicenter, unfortunately, there's a seismic shift that's going to happen within businesses, right? The environment that we're going into, and this is where I feel for people in the military, cause I think this is an important thing they have to consider right now. I have people that I personally know they're separating from the military or retiring here in the next couple of months. And I was, I even, I, I wanted to tell them this in this conversation too, is that it may not be the time as much as we had all these great plans. One of the greatest things that we do can do in the military is pivot, right? Because when shit goes wrong, it does, especially if you're at war, um, you're okay. All right, moving out or doing a different mission. Now I think that, at least I remember my transition, you may have been the same thing. I remember all I wanted to do was get out. Like I was like, I was done. Like I, they had told me for my case, I was medically retired. I, I was, I, I was just, I'm so done with it. Right. I was frustrated with a lot of things. I just wanted to get home. It went very quickly. I get it. But I think now is an opportunity now when everyone, even if you did your four years of that, I understand wanting to get out, but understand. And especially with that, that especially join programs like American corporate partners, because you need to talk to people who, who are smart, like the Tim Cochran's of the world, thing like that, who sees this seismic business shift that's about to happen. There's going to be more than a recession. Unfortunately, I don't care. Everybody can sugarcoat it. Anyone want, you can keep putting all these stimuluses out there. It's not going to change. Like we talked about before we started this conversation that the money may flow too late, right? There may not be recovery. There's gonna be a massive unemployment spike, which we're already seeing, things like that. So I, I want to encourage people to use programs like ACP um, to listen to smart people out there to recognize that what may be, it may, it's gonna look so different six months from now, in a year <laughs> from now, and the ripple effects are gonna look even more two years from now. But listen to the smart people who are out there who lived it, and then make an informed decision. Because if you're, the, the Army's, not, the one thing I will say, I think the recruiters are gonna have a lot easier job here in the next six months to a year, instead of making up all the bullshit lies that they used to tell us, you know, like, you know, that, that to get us through the door, it's gonna be, 
I still think there'll be some lies. I'm going to tell you a quick story here in a second. I heard one of the greatest <laughs> lies ever in one of the interviews the other day, which actually may take the cake. But I think that, you know. I don't lie. No, no. Well, look at this. So I'll tell you, but before we get to that, I just think that's where I wanted to get to was that we're in a unique time. Because it's unprecedented, it's unforeseen. Not even in, in, in the 20s and the 30s did anybody see. It was different, right? Because that was caused by, you know, also a housing market collapse and all the other things that happened during the Great Depression um, and the Volstead Act and everything else that was inside of there. Um, but, like, now we just don't know because there's so much unknown. So what I'm saying is if you had something stable, I don't, uh, my only advice is to consider all options before saying, all right, I hate it. I'm getting out. It's terrible. Sorry, Major's riding me. You know, I can't take this anymore. I don't want to live in the barracks or I have all these plans. Dude, it'll be there once the thing blows over. Like it's like stability, especially if you have a family, you know, and things of that nature. I just, it, it, it kind of worries me because I see people that are on that path again and they don't want to deviate from it. Yeah. And listen, there's going to, and, and I, I'm 100% with it but they're still gonna do it. They're gonna get out. Here's what's gonna happen, a big part of what's happening. You see the unemployment numbers, right? So many businesses wanted to downsize employee-wise prior to this mess. Yeah. And so a lot of people are not gonna be going back to work, even though we're gonna get back to normal, to some normal, yeah. um, it's gonna happen. So there's gonna be that. Um, the thing about ACP, right? And look, you know, I'm so I, I drank the Kool-Aid uh, yeah. because yeah. I get to see I have over 3000 men and women in my program. And I and I watch what how the lives change. You need to have something like this if you're going to make that move for the simple fact that you got great foundation. Right. You're coming out. You got skills. You got all these things. That's not changed in this environment. But you need somebody to help you connect the dots. Right. And why wouldn't you take care of? Look, there's all these great programs. I, I'm not going to start reading off VSOs, but you yeah. can go through all these cohorts and things. They're phenomenal. There's stuff that you and I never even saw when we when it came out. What's available today? They end. That's the right. one thing about ACP is I kind of talk about it like going to a, to a, a wake. Everybody comes. They got their arms around you. Right. You know, it's, everything's fine. You're going to be great. Don't worry about it. I'm sorry about your loved one and all. Then all of a sudden you wake up Monday morning. God. Everybody's gone. Where'd everybody go? Where's yeah. all that good feeling? Now all of a sudden at ACP, you got somebody for a year who you can pick up the phone and say, what do I do now? What should I do on this interview? What should I do? I mean, look, the key to life, you, you know, as I'm involved in so many aspects of veteran transition now, mental health part of it, spouses, like you say, you talk about the underserved of the, of the military. The fact of the matter is, if, if you don't have meaningful employment, your life could fall apart pretty damn fast. That's right. Yeah. And, and I'm not just, it is what it is. I don't give a crap. You, you or and I could, could grab our M16 and head into battle. We feel a hell of a lot better. That's I, right. you know, at least you knew what the, you know, was, was going to happen. You got to tell it out here day after day after day of trying to find a job and have a job that's going to take care of your spouse and you and a couple of kids. And now all of a sudden the expenses that you didn't even know were even out there are, are on your back to have somebody help you find meaningful employment, which is ACP's overall mission. It's not about jobs. How many of our guys and gals wanted to become baristas, right? Thousands and thousands of jobs they'll promote. 
but what are the jobs that are out there that are great jobs? How do I get to there? You get a damn mentor, you get somebody. Look, I feel like, because we have all these conversations all the time, but you didn't join, most of our guys and guys, I know I didn't, it wasn't, I didn't join the Marine Corps because I was this great patriot. It was because I was one of eight kids in a two bedroom apartment in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And that was the best option in town after high school, yeah. right? And so now you got all these skills, you have an education, you took advantage of it all, you know, but you never worked a day in corporate America. You need that person that's gonna open the doors and help you figure it out, man. I, mean, I got no around it. I gotta go back to something though, because you just brought up something I think recruiters do do that. So he, he got you in the McDonald's drive-thru? Yeah, what do you do? And, and it, 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 all it took was a six pack of Heineken. He, he you know, um, what time you get off here? And, and I was like, who the hell's this guy? You know, I, yeah. I, I was a Brooklyn Marine before I became a Marine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and he said, I said, I close at midnight. He said, I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'll, I'll buy you a beer. And he showed up with a six pack of Heineken. I was in. I was like, holy smoke. Hey, for all you recruiters out there, if you get a listen <laughs> to this, that's actually a pretty, that might be one of the best places to go look i never even thought about a show up in your whatever they call them now I, a's b's greens but i don't even i'm getting too old for this but uh shit go through the go through every drive-thru i guarantee you'll grab a kid that wants to get out of there that's a brilliant idea my work for you i just reached out to the president of mcdonald's uh and told him, i told him you know i used to my claim to fame was i was there and now i'm a marine and i think i said how come mcdonald's isn't helping veterans do acp and the guy's gonna try to set up a call with his staff for me. So you never know where you're gonna wind up in this life, trust me. So before I jump to the next thing, I just wanna tell you the best lie. So like one of the things I, and I don't know if you had this, but one of the, I've been asking people, what has been the best lie the recruiter has told you, right? Um, and so, so far the winner and, and that I have, and this is a great one. So somebody, and, and it'll air, I'm not gonna ruin the, the interview before it airs, but he says um, he, was, uh, he was a post 9-11, uh, joiny, right? He was, it was, it was the sense of patriotism, right? But he wanted to fly. He wanted to go bomb everybody and do all that kind of stuff. So he goes into the army recruiter's office and he's like, well, you know, I know we can, he goes, I'm really thinking about the air force, you know, cause I really want to fly. And you know, cause they, they gave him off, you know, they gave him the options to took the ASVAP because ah, I think I want to go back to the air force. The recruiter tells him like, Hey, listen, you know, after nine 11, you know, this is what's going on we're reactivating the army air corps and we're gonna because there's such a demand to go bomb the taliban and the afghanistan and everything else we're actually it's going to take a little bit of time but we're bringing all the planes back so you don't need to go to the air force but all you need to do is sign up for this and then when it comes up you just do something called a 4187 and you could go right in and be a pilot Oh my God. Like, that is, first off, that guy made that up on the fly, right? Because, I mean, more than anything else, but holy cow. And he signed. And now, listen, we all don't know better, right? Walking into that office in most cases, unless you have somebody who was in your family or a close friend who says, hey, I'm going to walk into the recruiter's office so they can't BS you. But I got to tell you, that's pretty slick. That guy's the number one salesman for, for, for the Hyundai. For the Hyundai dealer <laughs> down in Pompano Beach right now. <laughs> Can you imagine? Think of all the lies that say the Army Air Corps is being reinstituted and wow. we're going to bring you through. Don't go to the Air Force. You can be a pilot. Just fill out this one form with you and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah.
0311. I, I, listen, I was blessed to have, I had a great recruiter who guaranteed me a, an MOS. And I, yeah. I got everything they ever said. Uh, but I've heard the same kind of horror stories. It's, it's pretty funny. Oh my God. Yeah. My, mine, mine wasn't, I, I tell you once in a while, mine was, is, wasn't remotely like that. The biggest lie they told me, cause I was reversed. I really had a, a bizarre way. I went through the military. I graduated college and then I enlisted, you know, so I was all, I mean, I, and I was just another dumb, dumb. I was a bank investigator at the time, a fraud investigator. And, um, which comes full circle. Cause I mean, that's all we do now is, you know, fraud and OIG cases, inspector general and department of justice cases here. But the funny thing is I was just one, I was, like you said, I, I wanted a way out. Like I was up now at the time I was in North Jersey. I couldn't take it anymore. I depth into the Brooklyn maps. Um, and, um, I just remember my lie was I had the degree. I'm like, Hey, you know, dumbs. I don't know anything. So I walk in there. I'm like, Hey, you know, what do I do? You know, what do I do to, to, to get, you know, I, I, can I be an officer? He's like, no, 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 no. Here's how it works. <laughs> I'm like, okay, how's it work? He's like, you gotta enlist first and go through basic training. You gotta serve at least two years and then you can put a packet in to go ahead, which was a complete lie, right? Cause I mean, you can go right in, OC, you go right to base training and then you go to OCS. Knew nothing about it. And I remember, I'm like, oh, that's, uh, that makes sense to me. Yay, so two years, like two years. So I remember getting to basic training and like they're looking at my packet. Cause what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that was like the heartbreaking moment, like two weeks after reception, like the drill sergeant's like, why are you here with a degree? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, drill sergeant, I gotta, I gotta go to OCS after two years. He goes, no, who told you that? I go, recruiter. He's just shaking his head. He goes, you know what? I'm just gonna tell you right now, just start pushing for being stupid. And I'm like, all right, sorry, sorry. I don't know any better than doing my push-ups. Uh, yeah, he got me good. So, but nothing like the Army Air Corps. I was, I mean, talk about a, he's, oh, I, that gets me. Um, so, the one thing I want to switch topics on real quick is uh, just for you, because it's interesting, because you went from, I think it's inherent with you, and I think a lot of people have to recognize this too. Um, we talked about transition, ACP mission, everybody who hears this, listen, if you're listening to this, understand American Corporate Partners. Um, it's there for a reason. Mentorship, military spouses is open to all you. I think it's great. I think an important thing that people, I want to touch on because a lot of people get into this nonprofit space, right? And they, I really think, and they want to help, right? And I think people have to realize it's not an easy game. And I think I want to just kind of touch on one of the things I think you do exceptionally well um, and I've, I've dealt with it with, with the Redskins found, Charitable Foundation now and other organizations like Headstrong, even with ACP and, and trying to connect people. But people have to realize is that the biggest part of the nonprofit world is, yeah, you can have a great package, you can have a great message, but you have to be able to raise funds. And I think that if I, I now it's not to dissuade individuals from trying to do good because there's a difference between self-service self-serving and, and selfless service right i think people have to realize that there's that volunteerism is very important in this world and community service to to others is important but if you want to get in and, and try to understand what real nonprofits are doing you have to understand the intricacies of what is the core and the base and the foundation is that you actually have to sell. You, you are a salesperson. You raise funds because you believe in that mission. That's the most important thing. 
And I want to kind of get your take on that because I think it's important for people to realize this and you because you have such an interesting background and you've done it most of your life that I think people really need to understand what that's about, especially with the nonprofit world. No, no doubt about it. You know, as, as we say, rich or poor, you gotta have money. Um, that's right. At the end of the day, you know, I was blessed. So I become one of the youngest members of the New York Stock Exchange. And I probably close to being the, the youngest seat owner of the New York Stock Exchange. And remember, I, I didn't have any great super skills. I just, bam, full speed ahead, <laughs> right through the walls. Who gives a shit? I'm done. Right. Um, it, it, and it is. But, you know, uh, I, was, I had great mentors who saw that in me and knew that, that those were the attributes that could help them. And so, I mean, one of my first mentors was Cardinal O'Connor here in New York. Um, I was asked to come on board. He was starting an order of nuns um, and he needed young, enthusiastic people who believed in his mission uh, to help him start that. So I was one of the founding members of the Sisters of Light uh, board. Uh, and so I learned very early on how to ask for money. Um, and it's exactly what you said. It was because I believed in what they were doing and how they, they were helping people. Uh, but through years and years of everything from being on the floor, so that took me on to being, I was the political liaison for the New York Stock Exchange back when it was a nonprofit. And it took years of great mentors and not only learning how to ask, but have, I learned how to ask from being asked right. uh, so often. And that's what I combined that together and today, you know, I consider myself a pretty premier fundraiser for the simple fact that, look, guys go to school, get Wharton degrees uh, on fundraising. It is so important. And there are so many aspects of it, everything from direct mail to bequeaths and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, if your personality isn't one where you can walk up, stick out your hand to somebody, say, hey, and see them smile when you tell them what you do and not the next right. sentence be, hey, can you write us a check? Then you better think very carefully about going into the nonprofit space because nobody, it's very rare. I've been three years at ACP. I don't know that one time that I picked up the, one time, I must say one time that I picked up the phone and the guy said, hey, I want to give you money. Yeah, uh, wow. And without it, you know, we have almost 50 staff, you know, we have an annual budget um, and we're blessed that our model is one that our companies support us at the same time, provide the mentorship for it. Uh, but pro I probably asked you for the thousand dollars when you became a mentor because you didn't cover on the thing. And so no matter where you're at, it's all about fundraising. Uh, but if you believe in what you do, um, it's so it's, it's, trust me, it's easy. I, I told you this, it's so hard. Here's the other thing that you have to have about yourself when you go into the nonprofit space. A ton of work. The reason I'm very successful at bringing companies into ACP is because for 20 some odd years as a trader, when, some, when the state of Florida called me up and said, Timmy, start buying IBM, I'll tell you when to stop. Um, I would wouldn't just walk out on the trading floor and start buying and selling stocks or doing whatever. You know, a ton of research went into right time, right place, when, when to gauge the market. How do I start buying for this client? The same things goes into fundraising, right? All of a sudden you've identified a contact. In my case, it might be the CEO of Emerson Electric, ringing the bell, David Farr. He gets up there, rings. 
I put so much time and effort into trying to get to David and then get up to him. Then he looks at you and he says, yeah, Timmy, this is, that sounds phenomenal. Uh, ACP is something my people should be doing. We love veterans. We want to identify talent and so on and so forth. Now you got to close it. That's and right. Closing can be the hardest thing in the world, right? And it's about being tenacious and being able to go after it and, and timing. I mean, obviously, the last four weeks has been a pretty rough time to be calling people up and asking them for money. Yeah. But my veterans, that you know, we just in the last day, I think I got 68 men and women apply. So that doesn't stop. You never stop in the nonprofit. I know that's a long way to your answer, but and I'm not discouraging anybody. If you have that about you, God bless you. Get into the nonprofit space. It's no, but it's not about that. Why I brought it up is because I, I wanted there to be a lesson here because I know you live it and I know you know it very well. And this is the lesson I wanted to tell was a couple things. And and, and you, you hit it all in the head because it was it was actually not you said it very well because first off. Anybody listening to this, when it comes out, has to recognize one thing. Stop asking for donations on LinkedIn Messenger, and I don't even know who the hell you are. Like, that's the number one rule, okay? <laughs> that's that, this, I, the reason I'm saying that is that it's, a, it's somewhat of a lost art. And the reason, I think it might be either, and I hate to even start to say it's generational or whatever it is, but people have to recognize because you lived it, and that's why I wanted you to explain the whole thing that people who actually are the most successful fundraisers, there's an art to it, right? Now you get a couple things here and there and you can have asks and I get that, but listen, the, fan, the, 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 you know, the friends and family plan only works as long, you know, only so far, right? Um, so what I, want, what I really wanted people to learn from that was it's not as easy as it looks, A. B, um, there is the art. The first thing you do, if you want to get a professional development lesson, if you want to help out, because I, I always get that. And I know you probably get that a lot of times too. Everyone's like, oh, I want to be able to help. I want to do things like, you know, with the, the, with the, the charitable foundation. I want to do things like this. I want to do all. And, I, and the first thing I say to them is, that's great. Now, if you want to do volunteering, like and do time served, that's fine. I, I, absolutely. There's a role and we need that. And that's across the board for anything. I get that all the time. But the real question is, we need you to help us raise funds. Can you do that? And I always get a dead fucking silence. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's like then all of a sudden it becomes real. Cause I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I love the fact that you can come help me hand out or stuff things or do something that's very important. But then they're like, well, we want to be in an expanded role. I always get, that's always a follow up, right? Of course. Cause they want the access. I'm like, that's great. How are you going to help me raise X amount of dollars? I need to know what that plan looks like. Pick up the phone. And then I have people who like, it's amazing to me. They, there's no contribution whatsoever. Um, and I don't know whether it's a trying and, and I always get the same thing. Well, I, I, I sent some emails. I go, that's emails. I go, that's the lost art right there. Pick up the phone, set a meeting and go sit down and talk to someone and brief them. That is the biggest thing in the world. Cause I find that to be, uh, you know, the most interesting thing. Like Burbas is a perfect example. Like we don't charge anybody, right? Nonprofit, we know exactly what our costs are. I say we, Justin and myself um, and the team, you know, we know what the profit thing is and we're unique because it's like you are building this thing and that's a massive organization, right? ACP is this thing. We're doing a social event for veterans to learn about ACP, right? So it's not that. So for us, we know exactly what we have to hit. We make it very cost effective for everybody. Um, but we really don't have an ask. 
But I know that from different things is that because I never wanted there to be a barrier there. Your service is different because I think your service is, is, is beyond valuable, right? But again, what you just said to people, they need to understand is that it's the more important thing. You're still getting applications every day. The economy has shifted tremendously in, in a matter of whatever, three weeks, right? And you still need to be able to operate. But it's not right now. I mean, we're, we just had to cancel half our fundraising for the year for all our events, right? Whether it's Headstrong, it's all these things. All our galas are postponed or, or canceled. Things that brought in money that funded our organizations, like for, for the Redskins that helped the kids, you know, for the programs, the golf, things like that. We've had to postpone those things that have significant things. Yes, we're pivoting like we're supposed to do. But people have to realize that if you want these great programs that are going to help people, we still got to raise money. It's still going to have to happen. And it's not an easy thing to do. Oh, it's the one-on-one. So as you know, I ran for Congress, right? So mm -hmm. I'll never forget my call. Um, when I made the decision I wanted to do it, I called from my office, the chairman of New York State, uh, the Republican Party in New York State. And I said, they, um, I want to do this. He said, great. Call me back tomorrow at one o'clock and tell me you have $250,000 in individual gifts. Wow. You can't write the check. Right. You have it in individuals. Now, by, you can imagine I hung up the phone. I was like, how the hell? Because at the point, I'm pretty sure the most anybody could give was $2,000 or whatever. It was the, the cap on uh, individual giving. So, uh, and dude, it was just like, wham. By midnight that night, I had the $268,000 or whatever it was. And it was just picking up the phone and calling everybody. In the, and I'm talking about people who did, you know, I had a lot of friends that have money and they're Wall Street guys and make money, but they could only give. You know, it wasn't like anybody could wrote me the check. The other end of it was I had plenty of friends and family. I had the eight kids in two-bedroom apartment, Sunset Park, who didn't have $500 to their name. Right. Uh, but because they knew it was important to me and they knew I so believed in what I was about to embark on. Uh, yeah, Timmy, I'll get you $500. I'll get it for you. You know, and that's something that, you know, you got to have. You got, and, and emails, dude, emails, text, direct mail. I think the results on direct mail is like 2%, which works out great if you're the American Cancer Society. Right. And you can send out to 42 million people and right. you get 2% of that, you're doing okay. But if you're a small not-for-profit and you only get 2% of your direct mail, you get $11. Right. You know? So at the end of the day, you've got to have that one-on-one -on -one experience, have a, a good network. You don't have to know everybody, but you sure as hell better have the best pitch in the world and be able to have something you can sell and you believe in. You know, I, my staff get a kick out of it all the time because I literally, right now, I have a list. I think it's 98 conversations I'm currently having with corporate America for things. And I believe half of them don't want to say no to me. They believe in it. They, if they can get the money, right. they'll get it. But I, I've endeared myself to them that they know that they could reach out to me and I'd help them. And right. they're looking to help me. That's a big part of fundraising and in the non-for-profit space. You know, there's a, there's an art to it. And, and if you believe in what you do and you care about people in general, right? The guy who's writing the check can read through anything. It's amazing. You, you right. can't just a gap, give for gab and all, you know. Yeah. I'm going to give you this line of bullshit and you're going to come in. No, Timmy, see you later. You better have a track record of this guy delivers. 
Uh, this guy's an up, you know, standing guy. Most of your fund development guys, I think the average um, time for somebody in a fund development job is two years. No. So there's even a long-term, you know, stake in the business uh, until you start moving on and looking to your, you know, your next endeavor. It is one of the hardest things, but the end of it is, is you wind up like it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. When you right. see the results of what your funding gets you to. So I get it that people would want to be in it, but sending out messages on, yeah, yeah forget about it. Give it up now. Give it up. I love you. But you know, if take, re and that's the other thing. I guess I thrive on rejection because trust me, as much success as I've had, I've had tenfold in rejection. Right. You better be used to that also. Yeah, and I think that's why I wanted to kind of bring that part up because I think it's important because you're one of the people I've talked to that really do know the nonprofit space well and know the difficulties that are involved in that. Um, and I really wanted the audience to kind of hear that because um, it's important. It's an important aspect to... Um, you know, I know, I, again, I, a lot of people, I think their heart's in the right place. They want to help, but they got to understand that it's not, it's a grind. It's not easy. And especially if you're doing it, like you're doing it in your position, but from a volunteer perspective, if you're there to be on a, a charitable foundation board or something along those lines, and that's your job is to make sure that money comes in, you, you understand that it's, 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 it is absolutely a struggle. And although it's your time, nothing's free. So, um, I just wanted to make sure that people got that sense because I see it more and more now. And um, I, I mean, I don't, re I don't even respond, but the ones I respond to are people that are personable, warm, have a mission, very clear plan. I love the, you know, like you said, if I really believe in the cause, that's a different story, right? You know what I mean? I'm deeply passionate um, about what you guys do, what Headstrong does, well, I can go down, yeah, with the, with the charitable, with the Redskin Charitable Foundation does. Like, I have deep things that I learned, but they educated me over, I mean, Headstrong and ACP were, you know, really not, are no-brainers for me, right? But other organizations that we contribute to, like Boulder Crest and, and the EOD Warrior Foundation, all those things, uh, you know, those really just was through what the great programs that they do and the education of how they help, so. It's a little bit of research goes a long way, but a lot of things had to do with the people who run those organizations that made me say, I'm going to go with them compared to this, right? Because it, they took that time. So if anything that comes out of this messaging is that I want people to recognize that, especially with what ACP does and how it's not an easy job because it would, Tim, right now, like you said, the difference is that th there's one difference with Tim Cock because he's the one that is making those deals and he's closing them. So people, if you're going to learn and listen, listen to what he has to say, because it does make a difference and it's, it's, it be quantified. It's very simple. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, you see results, but you gotta, it's 24 seven brother, you know, it, it, is, it is. And, uh, but with that, I'd like to say, you know, um, we're about the top of the hour. I appreciate getting to talk to the, the, the <laughs> incredible Marine, uh, well, no, I'll get it. Can we get you there? Your, your wife's probably like, Jesus, I got to go home. I got to uh, deal with this. Enough. Right? <laughs> you got to live with it. We pumped you up enough today. Um, so yeah, I, I, again, Tim, I appreciate your time today. It was, it was great talking to you as always. Um, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I look forward to having you on Burba's, uh, the virtual uh, the resource event that we're going to have on uh, mm -hmm. April 29th. 
And um, it was great. Have a great, I'm looking forward to hearing you speak, talk about the program and letting everybody kind of know what's happening. Um, and uh, yeah, I just stay safe out there, especially where you are. And ladies and gentlemen, the great Tim Cochran. Thank you so much, Scott. Listen, let's end with, if you're a veteran, get a mentor. ACP-USA.org. Don't miss it. Uh, if you're a spouse, <laughs> listen, somebody needs, everybody needs somebody. I'm telling you. The other end of it is if you want to help, if you got a company, small company, there's only one General Motors, right? I need every little company in America right. to step up and help our guys and gals as they're coming out of the military. Love you, Scott. Have a great day. Oh.